Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, we'll look into the Prime Minister's testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry, particularly the part where the PM said Premier Doug Ford wanted to duck his responsibility when it came to breaking up the so-called Freedom Convoy. TVO's affordability reporter joins us to discuss what coping with tougher economic times looks like for Ontarians and how this looming recession is not like any other. And he became Premier of Ontario more than 30 years ago and has had a couple of other very big jobs in public service since then. Bob Ray returns to Queen's Park to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award. It's Tuesday, November 29th, 2022, so let's get to it. So... This past weekend. Did you watch any of the soccer? No, there's only so much pain what? I'm going to bring into my life. What? No, you didn't watch? No, no, I, I did not. We scored our first men's soccer goal in the World Cup ever, and you missed it. Oh, I understand it that the other team scored more goals. Yes, though. I'm afraid that is, <laughs> that is also true. You know, it was, it was good to see the lads out there. And, um, you know, what do I say? They did their best. They scored a goal. The goal they scored was gorgeous. It was an absolutely beautiful goal. But um, we still got some work to do. Uh, clearly, yeah. Canada not uh, taking the World Cup by storm anytime soon. Uh, not yet, not yet. But we showed up, we competed, and um, onward we go. I mean, one of the things about living in Toronto, though, is even after Canada is eliminated, uh, you can almost just pick your country from the list. And oh, there is right. some large community here that is cheering for that country, and you can join the festivities when they win. <laughs> no question about it. You drive around the city and you see lots of flags on lots of cars right now. No, people are still into it for sure. Uh, okay, where do you want to go now? Let's go to the mailbag. Regular listeners will know that off the top, we've begun to share comments we get about uh, what people like or don't like about the job we're doing, the things we're saying, uh, or perhaps the guests we've had on. Uh, so what do we have this week? We, as a matter of fact, have a question from someone named Jeffrey Wren in Ottawa. And here's what Jeffrey says. I was listening to the episode where Kingston and the Island's MPP Ted Shue was talking about his natural gas-related private member's bill, and I started wondering, why are Kitchener and Kingston the only municipalities that still operate their own natural gas utilities? How did Enbridge end up as the natural gas utility for most of the province? Now, Jeffrey, that's a real good question, and I know a very nerdy public policy guy who can definitely weigh in on that question. Mr. McGrath, the microphone is yours. I regret to say I wasn't able to find the uh, the definitive satisfying answer for me about these two cities, at least. Uh, so what I'm going to do instead is just speak broadly about uh, utilities in Ontario just for a little bit. Historically, whether it is uh, electricity or water or natural gas, we have in this province had a mix of uh, sometimes private companies, sometimes publicly owned ones, usually operating at the local level. Uh, so with natural gas specifically, there has always been very large 
bridge distributors and bridge now being the latest one uh, but local utilities have not always been uh, privately owned at least in this case in Kitchener and Kingston they still have two publicly owned local uh, distributors there used to be a, a lot more competition in the market but uh, in 2018 the last two big companies uh, Enbridge and Union Gas uh, merged creating what is effectively a, a, a monopoly in most of Ontario other cities that have had small local publicly owned utilities sometimes they choose to sell their local utilities to a private company it's a way of getting money for the city if they're strapped for cash or if they want to avoid tax increases certainly you see this happen in the electricity space where locally owned electricity companies get sold to either to privately owned corporations or to Hydro One the the provincial well I suppose now Hydro One is also privately owned you see that dynamic uh, happen over time. And, and over time, it does tend to mean that the uh, small publicly owned utilities uh, <laughs> leave the public space and they get absorbed by the private market, except, of course, with the exceptions of uh, Kingston and Kitchener, apparently, where we still have a local uh, publicly owned utility uh, that is run by those cities. Um, whether this makes a huge difference for a natural gas customer at the end of the day is a, a bigger question. Natural gas prices are regulated by the Ontario Energy Board in this province, so it's not as simple as saying that you know Enbridge has this um, incredible monopoly that they can just gouge customers with. <laughs> that, that is a, a much larger discussion than I think we want to get into for this uh, segment of the podcast. Uh, but in short, uh, I, I think that is broadly the story of, of how uh, utilities and end up either privately or publicly owned in Ontario today. I have a follow-up question for you. Sure. If you are a municipality whose first letter is K, <laughs> is that how it works? Maybe that's how they divide them up? Yeah, I think that might be in the law somewhere that, you, uh, you know, Kawartha might also have to, you know... Kenora, another one. Yeah, okay, we got go. it all figured out. Uh, Jeff, thanks a lot for writing in. We appreciate it. You got us going there. If you'd like to prompt discussion between us, uh, please send us an email, preferably in question form, uh, at onpoliticsattvo.org. The Ontario government uh, was happy for the perception to be out there that uh, this was a city of Ottawa uh, issue and a federal government issue, and uh, that as a province, um, they really didn't have a responsibility or a jurisdiction uh, to, to play in there. I'm fairly certain that behind the scenes, um, the OPP was engaged with Ottawa Police Services and was providing supports as, as, we, uh, as we were as a federal government. But I think at the political level, uh, there was probably a decision to um, continue to, step, to, to, to stay back a little bit and let us wear it a little bit. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau testifying in Ottawa last week at the Public Order Emergency Commission. That was one of the key issues that's come up at the inquiry, namely the Prime Minister deciding he had to invoke a federal law and testify at a federal inquiry in order to end the convoy protests earlier this year. But, as Mr. Trudeau's comment suggests, was the ultimate failure one of the provincial government? JMM, what have we learned? Well, this is one of those cases where I, I think what we learned is that what it looked like in around January, February of this year is actually what it was. Your eyes weren't deceiving you. Uh, to remind our listeners yet again, something I have said before on this podcast, you know, local policing in Canada is ultimately a provincial responsibility. And that is the case even in the national capital. 
Ottawa police are ultimately a provincial agency, not a federal one. And so you can see in the prime minister's answer that he was he was frustrated by the fact that he was being blamed for a situation that, quite frankly, you know, Queen's Park ought to have had a bigger hand in resolving. Well, apropos of that, there was another famous Trudeau quote, not from the inquiry, but from some behind the scenes conversations that we were privy to. Thanks to the inquiry, this was between Mr. Trudeau and Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, with Mr. Trudeau suggesting Premier Doug Ford was, again, the PM's words, trying to avoid his responsibility here and thus was sort of in hiding. Those are not his words. Those are more my words. Is it as simple as progressive conservative Doug Ford willing to let liberal Justin Trudeau be held responsible for the mess in the nation's capital? You know, the prime minister had the option to uh, uh, make it an explicitly partisan point, and and he seemed to back away from that. He seemed to be uh, at least slightly charitable uh, because he didn't make it a partisan thing. He suggested that basically any politician's interests are to, to not lean into a mess if they're not personally getting dragged into it by events. Mm -hmm. I can understand that provincial politicians who were being overlooked uh, in the complaints everyone had about why this wasn't getting resolved would say, you know what, let's let's not poke our noses into this and and uh, you know, people will continue criticizing those people that help. And just before we talk about where things go now, um, let's talk for a second here about how the PM did. I must confess that uh, a lot of the people who really don't like Justin Trudeau that I have talked to in the last week or so, uh, or I guess in the last few days or so since he testified, thought he did really well. Thought, And they were surprised at how well he did. A lot of the kind of, you know, breathy, dramatic, uh, sometimes over-the-top, uh, gesticulating, um, like none of that was there. Uh, and instead, they thought, you know what, he acquitted himself pretty well. What'd you see? You know, one of the things that the, the dichotomy, if I can use that word about the prime minister, is that in his job, and, and this isn't a, a slam against him because it's, it's part of modern politics, right? He does a lot of performing, right? And he's good at it. And he's won multiple elections. Um, but the performance grates on some people. And what I think people forget about the performance uh, is that there's also substance there. That, and the... Uh, the prime minister has spent well spent many years of his career just trying to convince people that he wasn't a dim bulb, that he knew what he was talking about most days. And I, I think what came through in that testimony was just a reminder to that, you know, yeah, okay, you you might not like the performance side of Justin Trudeau. You might find it irritating, um, but he's not a dummy, and he's capable of answering substantial questions with substantial answers uh, in a way that I thought uh, left the public better informed. In which case, let's talk about what happens next, because he was, of course, the last major participant to testify at this inquiry. Premier Doug Ford, we will remind our listeners, invoked his parliamentary privilege not to testify. So did his deputy, Premier Sylvia Jones. So we're not going to hear from them. Uh, Other Ontario officials did testify. But now that that, uh, that's all basically done... Uh, what does Justice Paul Rouleau have to do now? You know, it's important to say that the inquiry isn't required to make a black and white statement like Prime Minister Trudeau was absolutely justified in invoking the Emergencies Act, and here's why. Uh, rather, the the order in council, the, the federal document that uh, created this inquiry, directs the commissioner uh, to make findings about the, the appropriateness and effectiveness of the Emergencies Act and the circumstances that led to it being invoked, uh, as well as the measures that the government took after the act was invoked. Uh, 
Commissioner Rouleau will have to file that report by early next year. I, I think it's either February or March. Uh, in the, the, I think the order in council says March 31st, but I believe he's aiming for earlier in the year. Um, but you know, people should be prepared that it might be the kind of document that just disappoints everyone at least a little bit. Uh, the federal government may not get it total vindication, right? Uh, they they may not get a document that that set, gives that that you know that perfect absolution, if if I, I could put it that way. Uh, but with the evidence that we have already seen uh, before the commission, it also is very difficult for me to imagine that the prime minister will be made out to be a villain in, in all this. Another important point is that this is all far from over. Uh, there are separate legal proceedings challenging the use of the Emergencies Act that are going to play out in court. Uh, they will take longer and uh, potentially could be more politically damaging for uh, the prime minister and the, the Liberal Party. Because unlike the inquiry, the courts uh, really could find that the use of the Emergencies Act did not meet the legal thresholds that are set out in law. You know what, though, uh, for what it's worth, and I think polls support what I'm about to say, I think Ontarians have pretty much already made up their minds about the advisability of invoking the Emergencies Act. I think they're more interested in the fact that because of this inquiry, we have been able to learn a lot of things that we didn't know, such as how these politicians actually talk to each other in private when the cameras aren't rolling. And uh, okay, I'm going to pluck some <laughs> some well-worn examples here. Uh, Ontario's Deputy Premier Sylvia Jones. Uh, saying to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, urging him to back off because, as she put it, you're not my effing boss. Except she didn't say effing. She used a word a little stronger than that. And uh, also, how do politicians actually make decisions? Who do they seek advice from? How long does it take them to make those tough calls? What do they really think of each other? You know, we saw Jason Kenney, the former premier of Alberta, tell some federal officials, the PM really screwed the pooch on this one. Now, again, that's not something I think he's likely to say when the cameras are rolling, but that's his authentic voice behind the scenes. And I think we are better off for understanding how these folks really get on. Uh, these are questions we got answers to. So for that reason alone, I think the inquiry was not only obviously a legally obligatory exercise, but a very useful one as well. Uh, right. In terms of the, the civic side of it, I uh, am overjoyed at the levels of disclosure that we have gotten. And as a, a journalist, I uh, frankly, it makes me weep. I wish we could get this level of disclosure and this, this speed of disclosure all the time. I mean, if you're not a, a working journalist in Canada, you may not ever have to you know, bump into the various freedom of information systems we have. But, you know, there are reporters who wait literally years to get the most anodyne document released from a federal department. And we've gotten all of this stuff in a matter of months, uh, frankly. Uh, let's do this every year. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting in my car in a parking lot um, somewhere in Appleby Line outside of a Starbucks where I just got a much-needed cup of coffee that I will not drink on mic. I've been driving for probably, I don't know, a little less than an hour, and there's, there's lots more driving left to do today. That was Kat Eschner, our TVO Hub's affordability reporter. You may remember that last week we talked about how Kat was going to travel all over Ontario to see how a possible looming recession would impact Ontarians. Kat joins us today for the first audio part of the series, Recession Road. Kat, first question is, what is Kat short for? No, you don't give that up? Oh, she's just shaking her head, people. You can't see it because we're not on television. We're just audio. And 
When you're on audio, just shaking head doesn't actually translate into anything. Allow me to say it out loud, then absolutely not. <laughs> okay. I just thought I'd ask. You know, yeah. you're, you're fairly new here, and I don't yeah. know you all that well, but... Uh, I'd be happy to tell you off, Mike. I struck out with that one pretty fast, didn't I? Okay. All right. Well, let's set the scene. You started off in Toronto, right? You're going around the province, but you started in Toronto. How come? Well, a couple reasons. One, obviously, is this this series, you know... It's a road trip. I'm driving around the province. I'm meeting people. And on a road trip, you start somewhere. And where I start from is Toronto, where I where I live and work. But another important reason is that Toronto is, in many ways, the economic heart of Canada. So you can talk about, you know, Ottawa and the Bank of Canada and sort of the, the government side of it. But the big five Canadian banks are all headquartered here. There is a really deep well of financial expertise here. Um, there are many links to the international uh, financial world here. And some of the stories that I do later in this series really dive into local issues, but we wanted to use this kind of positioning of Toronto to talk about some of the big issues um, and and answer the what I think is most people's main question about the idea of like the economic circumstances in which we find ourselves and the idea of a recession, which is will there be a recession? And if so, what does that mean for me? Experts tried to tell you that this recession is uh, different from others we've faced previously. How? Well, I think the recessions that have happened in recent history, starting with maybe the 2008-2009 recession, none of them were policy-induced. So a policy-induced recession is basically when the, the Bank of Canada says we are going to raise interest rates... And as a result, there will be a financial downturn. You can't see me, but I've got one hand real high and one hand real low. As a result, there will be a financial downturn, which will lead to less demand in the economy and will sort of cool off the market in that way. A policy-induced recession is a bit of a different animal than some of the other recessions we've seen because theoretically, at least, it's more tightly controlled by the central bank, so the Bank of Canada in our case. There are sort of two other things that are very different from historical recessions. One is that housing is a really, really big component of this recession. It's going to be the sector that sees the biggest downturn. Uh, people like financial experts told me, um, and you know, it's also a really vulnerable sector of the Canadian economy because housing is debt financed. Most people who, who buy houses, they don't pay cash, right? They, they, they finance them with a mortgage. That is one very significant form of Canadian debt. Um, Canadians are some of the most indebted people in the world. Um, and since housing is such a big part of that, that's going to be a huge component of the recession. The other thing that is different in this case is that this policy-induced recession, unlike the recession of the early 1980s, um, is happening in a really, really volatile environment, both nationally and internationally. There's um, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which is having a variety of economic impacts on economies around the world and here. There's climate change, which is only going to continue to have larger and more unpredictable impacts as, as you know, the planet continues to warm and we approach a few critical tipping points after which things become much more volatile. And we're actually, we're, there's a war in Europe right now. There's a war in Ukraine that is really affecting a lot of things, including commodities that Canada has a big stake in, such as grain and oil. We're all talking here, though, as if the next recession is a fait accompli. I mean, it has not actually been called yet, right? We have not had two consecutive quarters of negative growth. So is the cart before the horse here? 
That's one of the reasons, actually, that I wanted to start in Toronto, because I had some questions about, well, how can we have a recession right now? One of the reasons I was curious about this is because I was sort of like, okay, so how does this work? How do we go into a recession when we have such a tight labor market? There is such demand for work right now that theoretically labor, so workers, can exploit that to get higher wages, which gives them more money, which they can then spend in the economy. Like, how can we have a recession when this dynamic is also playing out alongside it? The reason for that is kind of complicated, but it does seem, based on the Bank of Canada's own predictions, they have not called for a recession yet. But Tiff Macklem, in his um, most recent statement to reporters, was ta- like he did acknowledge that the Canadian economy is currently expecting a couple quarters of what they call zero GDP growth. So that means gross domestic product. What Canada is making is not growing. It's happening at about the same rate. Um, and he did acknowledge that, you know, it is just as likely in those quarters that there will be slightly negative growth as slightly positive growth. So that's a bit of a weird recession in that, like, we're not going to see two consecutive quarters of significantly negative GDP growth. Even the Bank of Canada, which is very conservative in its predictions compared to even many other banks, which banks tend to be conservative in general, um, that's with a small c, is calling for something that looks like a recession. So we're not there yet. Likely we're going to get there. But the other thing that I wanted to sort of consider in this series, we called it Recession Road because it seems like there was going to be a recession. We're on the road to the recession. But the other thing um, that I really wanted to sort of hammer home with this series is that the economic problems and the hardship and the, the volatility that we associate with a recession or we associate with um, financial hardship more generally, they're already here. Like in this story, one of the first things I talk about is passing my local park, Allen Gardens, and seeing all the people who were living in that park. And I think that in itself is a tell. And it's not just in Allen Gardens. It's in I got off a plane a couple weeks ago, and I was walking through um, Union Station, leaving like the, the up. And there was this guy sleeping in the corridor. Toronto has many people who are unhoused. I've never seen someone sleeping indoors in that corridor before. And it's just made me think, you know, when you're seeing an uptick in people permanently living in these liminal spaces, then something has gone very wrong economically. So, you know, we have a provincial government that has run a a surprise surplus, and we have a a city government, at least in the city of Toronto, uh, that is uh, warning quite loudly about uh, a fiscal crisis that is facing it. And I think that goes to your point about, you know, seeing people sleeping in parks or uh, in train stations because there's there's just no safe shelter spaces for them. So I've got to ask, you know, is what we are doing to deal with this economic downturn helping? Is it working at all? So I'm going to answer this a couple different ways. First of all, let's start with the Bank of Canada. Is what the Bank of Canada is doing by raising interest rates having the desired impact of lowering the rate of inflation by lowering demand? The answer on that is kind of not yet, but inflation seems to have at least stalled for the moment in most categories or in in some of the most important categories. Again, the ability to raise interest rates is just one tool, right? Like, this is a, pro- a really complex, multifaceted problem that the Bank of Canada is sort of trying to trying to grok with, with the one tool it has, which is raising interest rates. So that's still playing out. There is always a lag. Um, so I couldn't really comment on how well that w- will look like it worked two months or three months from now. The federal government has intervened a little bit um, with a few very targeted policies that may be helping the people they're directly targeting, but I, that's not really what we cover here at On Poly. So uh, let's talk about the provincial government for a second. 
stuff like the gas tax holiday or like the recent payments to parents to the catch-up payments, these kinds of things, I don't think they meaningfully help because it's it's kind of an across the board payment that has a very different meanings for the different people it reaches and beyond that it doesn't really have a relationship with cost so the gas tax holiday great sure but or or the catch up payment fine but actual costs are still what they are you know and that $200 or whatever it ends up being for you it's certainly not a targeted thing but it's also not something that necessarily is going to have a huge impact for people who are currently in bad financial straits. Okay, Kat, we'll watch for Recession Road both uh, on podcast and online uh, as you make your way across the province of Ontario. So thank you. Thanks so much, Steve. Okay, for our third issue here, we're going to put the spotlight on a former Premier of Ontario, and his name is Bob Ray. Bob Ray was back at Queen's Park last week. He got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Ontario Association of Former Parliamentarians. And I went to the event just to check out uh, how they would be doing things. And I'll tell you, JMM, the first thing you notice, I have to look at the calendar because it's 40 years 40 years since Bob Ray left his job as a federal MP at the time. He was kind of this boy genius finance critic uh, in the federal house, only in his early 30s. And he, um, and he left that job to run for leader of the Ontario NDP, which he got in 1982. That's 40 years ago. And his, um, his trajectory was nothing uh, if not unusual. Uh, 1985, in the first election he fought, he came third, but it was a minority parliament, so he was the kingmaker. And he made David Peterson, the liberal leader, the premier of Ontario, ending that 42-year-long progressive conservative reign. Two years later, 1987, he came second, so he's sort of moving up the food chain, becomes leader of the official opposition, but it's a massive majority government for David Peterson, so Ray actually loses seats in becoming opposition leader. The Tories did even worse. Uh, and it looked like he was sort of going nowhere fast. 1990, he wins. He shocks everybody. I remember Stephen Lewis, uh, a previous NDP leader, on election night saying, this exceeds my wildest fantasies. A majority government for the NDP under Bob Ray's leadership. And he then, you know, unfortunately for, he and his, for him and his supporters, he proceeded to govern during the worst recession since the Great Depression. It was just a very bad time to be premier. He got blamed for everything, including bad weather. But, you know, a time does tend to heal a lot of things. And as a result, he's back at Queen's Park last week and three finance ministers from the three main parties all spoke, which shows you how nonpartisan and widespread the respect for Mr. Ray was. Former liberal finance minister Jerry Phillips said Bob Ray was a great premier who loved to solve problems. And when Ray got to the microphone to respond to that, here's what he thought of Jerry Phillips's comments. I only wish he'd said them once in the legislature of Ontario when he was the finance critic for the Liberal Party of Ontario. I mean, I just, he just said a nice, he said, you were a really good premier. I just like, where the hell was that? Like, what happened? Was there some sort of oath of silence you took for five years? I can't figure it out. Okay, so who else spoke at the event? Well, again, as I say, it was a tripartisan affair. And as a result, a, a former conservative uh, Treasurer Ernie Eves also spoke. Mr. Eves, of course, went on to become premier as well. Ernie Eves always brings the most cutting sense of humor to these events. And by way of example, he, he said, now, you got to go back here. Again, we're going back almost 30 years. The province of Ontario is in an economic mess. 
And one of the things the Ray government decides to do is bring in something called the social contract, where they are going to unilaterally open and abrogate collectively bargained agreements with the public sector unions in the province of Ontario so that, A, they can save jobs, right? Better to do that and make everybody take a few Ray days as opposed to fire a whole bunch of people, and B, save about $2 billion in public expenditures. And Mr. Eve said, um, Bob Ray, you were the guy who actually was able to abrogate uh, and take away rights from labor leaders and from workers in the province without even using the notwithstanding clause. <laughs> so that's considered uh, humor at uh, Queen's Park these days. Also, Floyd Logren, who was Bob Ray's finance minister, he spoke, and Mr. Ray, of course, is now our UN ambassador. And Floyd Logren said, Bob, you're doing exactly what you should be doing at this stage of your life. You are exactly where you ought to be. And anybody who's watched Mr. Ray give speeches from the United Nations, maybe on Twitter you've seen them or on Facebook, knows that Bob Ray is, he's given him hell, right? He is not holding back. He is a diplomat, but sometimes he's not very diplomatic in the way he describes what Russia is doing in Ukraine right now. You know, for whatever reason, Bob Ray just loves public service. He was an MP, then an MPP, opposition leader, premier. Then he jumped to the federal scene again. He went and became an MP again and switched parties. He became the interim leader of the federal liberals. And now he has the job that his father once had. He's the UN ambassador, and his father once held the job as well. He's 74 years old and still going strong. Ernie Eves had some pretty tough things to say about Bob Ray, certainly back in the day when they were you know, sparring in the legislature. Do they actually get along? Are they really friends? Uh, not, not only did he say tough stuff back in the day, he said tough stuff just a few days ago when they were back at Queen's Park together. They really are friends, and I'll tell you why. They have a tragic bond. When Mr. Eves was in public life, his son, Justin, died in a car accident. And a year before Bob Ray became premier, his brother, David, died of cancer. And the two of them have bonded over that. They support each other's charitable fundraisers in those endeavors. They've become golfing buddies as well. They sort of golf at each other's tournaments that raise money for these things. After Mike Harris retired in 2001, Thanksgiving 2001, Mike Harris stepped down as premier or announced he would be stepping down. And Ernie Eves at this point was in the private sector making a lot of money on Bay Street. And he called Bob Ray. Interesting. He called a former NDP premier to ask his advice on whether he should leave the private sector and try to run for the leadership of the PC party and become premier. And here's what Bob Ray had to say about that the other day. People still ask me advice. I don't know why, but they still do. What should they do? What's next? What do you think of this? And I say, take the opportunities as they come. And never, never, never miss a chance to find a way to serve. I think that's pretty much what I want to say. How would you compare the uh, strident partisanship of back then to today? Well, I thought it was pretty terrible back then, but it's actually nothing compared to the way it is today. It's really much more hateful today. And Bob Ray agrees with that. Here's what he had to say about the nature of partisanship back in the day. I really tried to make it a point in my experience in Ottawa and at Queen's Park of working with everybody. Not everybody agreed with me, but certainly the times that we had together, uh, we had farce, fierce partisan disputes. We had major differences of opinion. We had people getting thrown out of the legislature. We called each other names. All sorts of things happened. We had major disputes about every conceivable issue. But somehow through it all, we managed to work with each other through minority parliaments, through uh, accords uh, through all kinds of other ways of working together. We managed to do it. And I really think that's important. And I think the lack of it 
is a bad thing. Your intro delineating Bob Ray's uh, career trajectory there, it did remind me of something. When he ran for the uh, liberal leadership in 2006, and he came in third and uh, dropped off the ballot. And the contest ended up being between uh, Michael Ignatieff and Stéphane Dion. Mm-hmm. But there's something I will always remember. And you know, this is like the drama that you only get in those delegated conventions and we are unlikely to see uh, anymore, it, certainly very much of in the Canadian politics. But on the floor of the convention, Ray is being asked, who's he going to support? Who's he going to throw his weight behind? And he says... Something like, I'm going from memory here, it's not up to the third place uh, candidate to decide who becomes first. And so he decides not to endorse anybody. And as you were giving me the capsule history of his political, I was like, wait, he was the third place and he did decide who became the premier. (laughs) So he's done that before and he he chose not to do that in 2006. (laughs) He did it in 1985. He opted not to do it. That's right. uh, 20 years later. He's got lots of good lines. He's yes. over the years. I mean, let's say the guy extemporaneously is the best stump speaker probably in the history of Canadian politics. Certainly he's up there. It's in the top three. And I remember when he ran for federal liberal leader. And, you know, he had, even though he made David Peterson the premier by being the third place guy who backed ultimately the second place guy to become the first place guy. He had a very uh, tempestuous relationship with David Peterson because, of course, they both wanted the same job, right? They both wanted to be premier, so they weren't going to be pals. And when he ran for the federal leadership, he invited Oscar Peterson, the great piano player, (laughs) to join him at the front in making his announcement because he and OP were great pals. And uh, as he took to the microphone to announce that he was going to jump into the federal liberal leadership race, he looked over at Oscar Peterson and said... See, I told you we'd get Peterson's endorsement eventually. (laughs) Very clever. Very clever. And that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. November 29th is actually Giving Tuesday. And the Wilson Foundation is matching all donations in support of TVO Today's journalism up to $100,000. Thank you, Red Wilson. If you're able, if you've liked what we've done on the show, and if we've given you any insights into Ontario politics or even just offered you a perspective you hadn't considered before, please make your tax-creditable donation before midnight on November 29th to take advantage of this limited-time opportunity to double your impact. Yeah, you know, uh, let's let's just hit this right on the head. We know on Giving Tuesday there are going to be myriad charities coming at you asking you to give and... uh, We simply would love your consideration. We understand there's lots of wonderful things out there to give money to. We'd like to think we're one of them, and we we would just ask for your consideration. Donor investment in our current affairs content enables TVO's journalists to explore the important issues and stories of today and what we modestly propose as the solutions for the future. And another quick call out here. Are you an aspiring documentarian? TVO Today is calling on all nonfiction storytellers to submit a short documentary under five minutes. Check out shortdoc.tvo.org for more details. Cool. And I understand the winner of that contest gets a million dollar cash prize. So that's real incentive. No, that's not at all true. It's, I just totally made that up. But I was hoping for those who are fading, they might just pay a little more attention when I said the price. Anyway. Now they're going to be disappointed. <laughs> Moving right along. A reminder also to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to those at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on some more about the Emergencies Act inquiry and some of the juicy stuff that came out of that. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. 
This week's episode was produced and edited by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Shahir Tajvidi. Production support from Carlo Lucchetta and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs>